This is an AMI podcast. I'm Dave Brown, and this is a podcast version of AMI's Morning Show, now with Dave Brown. Catch the live broadcasts weekdays from 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a special edition of the Friday News Panel. Myself and Juita Gupta going solo today. Or not solo, I suppose we're going one-on-one. Tete-a-tete. Hey, good morning, Juita. How are you? <laughs> good morning, Dave. How's it going? Not too shabby. Hey, we were talking to Grace in the first segment about the uh, blackout in downtown Toronto yesterday. I know you're in that neck of the woods. How'd you hold up? You know what? I hadn't been to the office in about two and a half years except very rarely, but yesterday was a day that I ended up going into the office and working a full day. So I missed everything. Wow. Except that my husband uh, told me, uh, my husband had come down to the office with me. And at one point, my mother-in-law, who lives in the same building, called us in a panic and said, I don't have any power in my building, in my in my apartment. I don't know what's going on. So that's when we clued into the fact that something may not be quite right. So my husband went back um, to check on my mother-in-law. She's in her late 80s. And by the time he phoned me again, uh, about an hour and a half later, things seemed to have settled down. But I was listening to Grace, and it sounds like Grace had a very different experience. I think I'd have been really flustered if I had been in a building without uh, electricity, if I'd been cooped up in a small apartment like that, without heat or water. And I, I... Grace didn't mention this, but I would wonder about whether um, the elevators were working in her Mm, building, because mm. that could be a huge issue for someone with a mobility impairment. You are, for all intents and purposes, stuck in your building. And really good points about the hospitals. Uh, But no, for myself, to be perfectly honest with you, I missed everything. And then I got the news alerts late in the evening because I was buried under a pile of work yeah. so of all the of all the days to pick to decide to you know do the old uh, good old-fashioned work at my desk in the office thing i suppose that you could say i picked a good day the universe smiled upon you joita <laughs> let's uh, jump into our first topic here a house of commons committee has been examining the use of spyware by law enforcement agencies in canada the rcmp compared the use of digital spyware technology to using wiretaps and a former senior intelligence officer with CSIS admitted that spyware has been used to monitor politicians Privacy experts say police and government use of spyware needs to be tightly controlled and the technology should be outlawed for the general public. Roy Dybert from the University of Toronto Citizen Lab made several recommendations to the committee, including that the government hold public hearings about spyware, consult the public to create a legal framework around it, establish export controls on Canadian companies and penalize firms that facilitate human rights abuse. I think it's this was going to be Michelle's topic. It's, it's obvious that privacy is a huge, huge concern and something that's always worth examining, especially when we get some expert testimony on the matter this week. Joita, how do you feel about some of the some of the revelations that came out this week? Any that stand out to you? Well, there was a lot that was uh, unsurprising, to be honest with you. Mm, I think the concerns mm. around privacy are quite pervasive. And you're right, we have, I think, on this panel and elsewhere as well, talked extensively about how imperiled our privacy is as private citizens. But I suppose you could muster a degree of surprise to think that politicians uh, were being surveilled. I don't think that is something that comes to mind. I think when a lot of people think about privacy violations, um, I don't know where your mind goes, but I often think about the encroachment that social media platforms mm-hmm. make into our mm-hmm. personal lives. That's kind of where my brain goes. So the politician thing is not unheard of, but it was certainly a point of surprise for me. But later on in that article, 
there's one expert, a former privacy commissioner, who says that in the years that he served as privacy commissioner, he had no idea that the police service was making use of spyware. And the fact that the police was getting away with doing this without informing the privacy commissioner at the time, my eyebrows shot right up. Mm. That was such a weird one. No, there's a lot that we can talk about there, but I think the sentiment, at least for me, Dave, is that we know privacy concerns are widespread. It's not just Facebook and other social media companies, but also the state and the forms of surveillance that are taking place. And I think we have, in fact, as a country and as a as a people, really fallen asleep at the wheel when it comes to protecting our privacy. Yeah, I, I think we can accept and understand that in 2022, simply saying that wiretaps are the only form of surveillance that law enforcement can use would be very naive, right? We, we can understand mm-hmm. where using consumer spyware would at least benefit investigations. But as you mentioned, Joita, what's the process here? What's the transparency? We know that in the past, getting things like wiretap required warrants, required third parties, required going to judges. It couldn't necessarily be as willy-nilly as people wanted it, as, as maybe law enforcement would have liked it to be. And it seems like perhaps there's a loophole that they were able to get through on this front. So that's where we start talking about a process on surveillance technology. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would, I would just simply say that we just need to apply some of the former standards we had on wiretaps in terms of getting those warrants and that process being transparent. That isn't to say that you get a notification if the government is, if the government or law enforcement is surveying you because that would sort of defeat the point of of surveillance. But I will say that there needs to be a a clear process that's very similar to how the wiretap process worked for decades and decades. Well, precisely. We don't have to start from scratch. We do have a process um, to establish when and who and why you might get a phone tap, for example. And in order to get a warrant, you have to appear in front of a justice of the peace. And you have to be able to, the, the applicant, let's say it's a local police force, has to be able to reasonably prove that they have evidence to to suggest that a crime is about to take place. Mm -hmm. Now, I want us to maybe step back a little bit, Dave, and think about the context here. I think it might be helpful to think about 2016 and the U.S. elections and the uh, fear at the time that Russia had influenced that election. Uh, it, It is something that the FBI went on to confirm about a year later. And I think that is probably why, when we think about the substance of these most recent hearings, why politicians are being targeted because there's a fear that uh, foreign actors or foreign governments may be unduly influencing these politicians. Mm -hmm. But again, I come back to this point about due process and transparency to quote, you know, just to pick up on what you're saying. So, you know, if there's a, a sense that a politician may be committing a crime, I'm thinking something like a kickback or fraud, then again, there needs to be a reasonable, um, Uh, There needs to be a reasonable amount of evidence and not just a hunch to um, warrant the use of spyware. And then, of course, in the same vein, you don't just, I think, get the right to blanket surveillance of a person. Let's just talk about this. I think with a, a wiretap, one of the things you have to establish is when and how the communication is going to take place. So you would, you know, have to say we would like to, you know, phone tap this person because we have a reasonable belief 
that they're going to be talking to somebody in the next 24 to 48 hours about this criminal matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the conversations are more sophisticated than that, but just in the, in the, in the interest of making the yes. argument. Yeah, of course. So, so again, you know, so, so again, when we think about the use of spyware, we not just have to think about having a conversation and, and, and a process, but also putting limits on it. Yeah, so, scope. You know, you don't, scope is such, you know, an, scope scope is is such an important an side important of this. Thing. But if you'll allow me one other caveat, please, please. we're just talking about politicians here and we're talking about public figures. The other part of this that can be really disturbing is that anyone can download spyware. OK, it could be you. It could be me. You know, if you were not that you would or if anyone really wanted to spy on an ex-girlfriend that they had had a spat with or had a falling out with. The use of spyware as a way to track people has become a huge problem when we think about things like intimate partner violence. And I think that's the situation when we talk about the use of spyware to either look into or to surveil private citizens or, you know, when private individuals download spyware to try and, you know, perpetuate things like intimate partner violence, I think that's where we really need to crack down and say, no way, that's not okay. Because they, these conversations are hugely Hugely nuanced. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think the only place where I would come down really hard and say we've got to say flat out no surveillance whatsoever is in scenarios where private individuals can download um, software that allows them uh, to perpetuate or perpetrate things like intimate partner violence. Yeah, that was something that struck me during a couple of the committee meetings that really you don't even need to go to the dark web to download some of this stuff, that it's re- it's readily con- available for consumers if they want it. And that's and that's certainly a concern because even though we can, cer- we can try to put in transparency and controls and due process to law enforcement agencies – any every any average human, if they can just get their hands on this and they're a nefarious actor, they can they can do a lot of damage with it. And you're right, there's a lot of ways in which it interpersonally can impact people. And Joita, let's use that as sort of the, the the jumping off point into the concluding question here. One of the things that I say on the show a lot is that it really feels like privacy is something of a lost cause. I that isn't to say that I don't believe that privacy is is a is something we should strive towards, but I think oftentimes we as individuals at this point have willingly sold off or, or signed away some of our privacy for access to, to certain services, specifically in the online world. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but mm. I'm saying that we have. But as you start thinking about privacy as a human right or a lost cause, I know, they're gonna, I know your answer is going to be way more nuanced than that binary, but where do you start kind of contemplating that question? I want to applaud your pragmatism on this. I think uh, where I start the conversation is with the principled position that privacy is a human right. But with that said, I appreciate that you're bringing in a lot of nuance because a lot of us have traded in a good bit of our privacy for the convenience of using social media apps or other uh, applications on our phone. And, you know, um, we were just uh, earlier in the conversation when we were talking about wearable tech, we were talking about counting steps. Well, there's this application that's keeping track of how much you're walking, but it's also keeping track of where you're going. And so you're giving up a lot of your privacy in that fashion. But I think that the, the bottom line for me is that we perhaps should not be quite so cavalier about our privacy online. 
um, the reason we are in the situation is not because of an accident. It's because cell phones are designed to be notoriously invasive. Social media platforms rely on being able to gather our personal data and sell that to advertisers. We are here because we have allowed ourselves to end up here. Mm. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I was traveling in Europe and um, when I was using the internet in Europe, whichever website you went to, you, they, you had to give them your consent to advertise, uh, to, to collect your personal data. So every time I went on a website, there was a little thing that would pop up and say, do you consent to the use of your data? And then I think in the past, I've talked extensively about how much better I think they're doing in Europe in terms of things like the right to be forgotten. <laughs> in terms of everything. They're doing a good job in Europe. Well, it's certainly in terms of privacy, certainly in terms of privacy, I think they are leaps and bounds ahead of us when they're having the conversation about privacy. I think we have allowed a number of large actors, I'm going to talk just briefly about social media, to take up far too much space and to erode many of our privacy rights. When you get into things like the RCMP or CSIS or local police forces, having the right to surveil people without due process, that's a whole other can of worms. Because I think the one thing that doesn't get talked about in the article, Dave, and I was thinking about this last night, is the importance of privacy uh, and curtailing surveillance and how, how valuable those things become to our democracy. There are many examples of state surveillance where they've cracked down on protesters and dissent. And I think, and I would like to think that you would agree, that having a society where you can, you can have uh, dissenting opinions, where you can contradict the state, where you can, um, you can organize a protest without undue surveillance, is a really important pillar of our democracy, again, mm -hmm. with the caveat that in some interests, in some cases, you need to be able to provide some surveillance in the public interest. You know, if you have a, a terrorist group or a far-right group planning a violent action or something, I can understand situations or circumstances where an infringement of our privacy might be warranted. The key word for me, Dave, is circumstances and context. And really approaching this on a case-by-case -case basis is really important. And I will once again sort of echo the point about due process, because I think a lot of us don't realize how little process there actually is. We need a public conversation in Canada about our privacy. It is a long overdue conversation. And I really would like to see the government take some steps, not just talk about it, but to see some action to bring mm -hmm. about a public conversation about where we're at in terms of our privacy. It affects all of us. Yeah, those public consultation hearings would be a disaster, uh, but but de <laughs> they definitely would be important. I think it, it would draw it would draw out, let's call it some uh, peculiar uh, individuals and some of their views, but it would be a very important conversation. But yeah, but Julia, but to the serious point you were making there, as we have these conversations in good faith and are willing to maybe offer some of these powers to law enforcement, that works under the assumption that rule of, rule of law and democracy are still strong institutions. But as we don't need to look that far even just south of the border, there are some cracks showing in those institutions. And it wouldn't take much that if people have these powers and we lose some of that process, it could get ugly in a real hurry. So yeah, I think that's really well put. Juita, thank you for your thoughts on this one. You've been listening to Now with Dave Brown. Hit the subscribe button on any podcast platform and leave us a rating and a review.
Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.